hello and welcome to Relationship Rescue, the podcast. Every relationship begins with you. And today, I have a feeling this will probably take three parts. Um, so let's call it a three-part series and I'm going to tell you really exactly who I am, right? And, and how I became to truly understand um, how every relationship begins with you. Um, because I learned every relationship begins with me. And that is what led me to have my tagline, every relationship begins with you. And you guys know, if you've been listening to my podcast, how much I love my tagline, every relationship begins with you, because it is the truth. There is not one single relationship in your life that does not begin with you. How you react to that relationship, how you respond to that relationship, what you feel about yourself how you perceive yourself, your perspective, and also in the outside world. Everything begins with you, begins with your boundaries, if you're honoring yourself, everything. And, um, you know, one of the things that I found, and this is to be the truth, is that time is the wisest counselor of all. Time is the wisest counselor of all. And that lost time is never found again. You know that. You know it. Right? So I, in my life, time, have learned that based on the things that happened before, you know, a certain point, that during that time, that, that I now look at that back on those times and on the situations, and those are my counselors. Those are my counselors looking at my old patterns, my old beliefs, my negative beliefs, my thoughts, my reactions who these thoughts, reactions were with, was this relationship, um, how did I respond in this relationship, how did I react in this relationship, why in this one, what's good for me, what's not. That's the bottom line, you see? Because, so what's the irony? That time is the wisest counselor of all, but yet lost time is never found. So what does that mean that you have to do? It means to make the most of your little life that you have. Because it's a small life, it's not, it could be a big life, but really, it's, it goes so fast. And so, stop wasting time by learning from the time before now and pulling things apart. And that's the biggest thing of what I do with my clients, is teaching them, not staying stuck, not staying stuck in their childhood, not staying stuck in old thought patterns, looking at it. And learning how, from it, moving from there, and looking at all aspects of their life, from their childhood to maybe the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and if you're 50s, right? So, so how did my um, life begin? So, I was born um, in Chicago, Illinois. So, and I'm just going to, you know, actually it was called Waukegan, Illinois, but I'm going to refer to everything as Chicago. I was born and raised in a, a 20, probably five miles outside of Chicago. Um, and I was born to, I had an older sister um, who was, is three and a half years older than me. My mother and father were married, building a business. My father was building a radiator business at the time. Um, before that, he'd been a butcher. He'd done many things. He had gone to um, 
away to college um, on a football and baseball scholarship. He was very athletic, very good looking, extremely good looking, extremely charismatic, um, and really smart. My mother was two years younger than he was, very pretty. Um, she was in the middle of five children. My father was the youngest of three and much younger. You could almost say was pretty much raised kind of as an only child. He had two older sisters. Um, and they got together when, you know, they were in high school. Um, my mother, I don't believe ever finished high school. Um, I still don't really know that answer, which is odd. Um, I'll have to find that out. But anyways, my dad went away to college, like I said, to Western Illinois University on a football and a baseball scholarship. He got there and he couldn't handle it. He missed my mother. So he quit and he came home and, and he had a very tumultuous relationship with my grandfather. Um, and my grandmother babied him beyond belief. George... A. Hogan was on a pedestal for my grandmother. Big pedestal. Big, beautiful pedestal. The biggest of the pedestals of all the world. In all the world. George Hogan could do no wrong. And you know what? He was not just good looking. He was just Hollywood gorgeous. And like I said, the star athlete, the star quarterback, the star baseball player, all of it. And so... um. But he quit. So he came back and he actually started, um, he played cards. So this will be important later. He was a big risk taker, you know, gambler. Um, he worked for Commonwealth Edison, which was the electric company. He worked, did uh, like I said, a butcher, other jobs. And then he ended up opening up a radiator shop. My mother was doing deliveries for him. And that's when I was born. So I was born into them working together. I'm not sure what their marriage is, was. I have been told, obviously, I know my father loved my mother very much. Um, but I also know now that he was um, an alcoholic pretty much before she died. And he was abusive before she died. And that is something that was revealed to me recently by my sister. I did not know that. So that came as quite a shock. I mean, I knew that he must have been an alcoholic before. I knew that he would have had abusive tendencies. But to hear that he abused my mother was pretty shocking. And my sister said, you know, there was an incident where my mom was in the bathroom. And my dad was outside the bathroom very upset and he had my sister Kelly saying you know mommy please come out daddy said he won't do it again whatever that was and blah 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 so we now know I now know with 100% certainty that he was an abusive person before but he loved her very much but as we always say but but whatever yeah so he was already narcissistic he was already abusive and he was already an alcoholic okay so then eight um so eight when i was two well yeah because we're two years apart my brother was born and so um george was made my mother very happy 
as we all did, but um, he was a boy, right? So he was was named George after my father. And um, he had brown eyes like my mother. My sister and I are blue-eyed. He was the one that got the brown eyes like my mom. And he was a very big baby. <laughs> I do remember that. So anyways, my parents were having, fast forward, George is eight months old. I'm turning three in February. Um, and my sister would have just turned seven. And it was December 31st, 1972. And my parents were having a New Year's Eve party. So the way the day went was, and this is all according to my sister, because I do not remember a thing. Um, they were having a party. You know, we woke up, I guess, like every day, whatever we do in the morning. And, and so th that afternoon, sometime around noon, um, my mother was chasing my sister and I around my brother's crib. And Georgie was jumping up and down in the crib. And Kelly and I were laughing. Um, and she said she had to go to the store to pick up buns for the party. And I also guessed she was supposed to stop at my her mother's house. Um, I don't know, to pick up a, something. Anyways, so Kelly said I begged to go. And my mom said no. You know, Grandma Hogan, which was my dad's mother, is staying with you. Mama, you'll be right back. And we'll play some more before when I get home, right? They had a, she had a lot of preparation to do for this New Year's Eve party. So she left and my grandma Hogan was with us. And I guess Kelly and I were on the couch <clears throat> watching TV and my grandmother answered the phone. And she, Kelly heard my grandmother scream. It was blood curdling. It was, Kelly said she will never forget it. Um, and obviously, she had been told my mother had died. My father walked into through the door, and then he got on the phone, and he collapsed, and he was basically told he was dead. He left. My sister remembers him leaving. Nothing was being said to Kelly and I at this point, and I'm oblivious. Kelly knew. She said, I knew something was you know, wrong with mom. I don't know if she says that she knew she was dead, but she knew something was bad. And so anyway, so my dad left again and he had to go ID her body. Um, and we were left with my grandmother who was, I guess, a mess, of course. Um, and Georgie, of course, is eight months old. He has no idea what's going on. So my dad went and ID'd the body wherever that was, the Lake County Coroner's office, I'm sure. Um, and a man, was drinking and driving and ran a stop sign and hit my mother. And at the time in 1972, no, she was not wearing a seatbelt. She was thrown from the car. Um, he came home and that evening, um, I guess all the guests still came to the party because, you know, it's New Year's and they're, they, but they came to console my dad this time. And Kelly said that we did not, we're still, we're not told. We still had no idea what happened. And I kept asking, where's my mommy? Where's my mommy? Where's my mommy? When's my mommy coming home? When's my mommy coming home? Um, and obviously she wasn't coming home, right? Uh, and I'm only getting teary-eyed because um, it's, it's for that three-year-old little girl. 
it's not for me. It's weird. It's you, And when you go through inner child healing and you can detach the adult of you, part of you, and look at the child and really, this is part of healing. I'm not crying for me anymore. I'm crying when I still see that three-year-old three little girl because I know exactly what she looked like, right? And I, I feel, my heart feels so much pain for her because... Um, I was her, but I don't know what I felt. I have no recollection of any of this. And actually, I have little recollection of many things. My sister says that if she wasn't alive, I wouldn't even know I had a childhood. <laughs> so, my father finally put Kelly and I each on a knee. And Kelly said everybody was looking at us. And my dad said that a man hit our mom and that she was never going to come home. And then she was in a place called heaven and I would never see her again. And Kelly said, it was really quiet and, and you said, that man's a pig. <laughs> Which now knowing, you know, from aunts and gra my grandmother and things that I was basically very assertive and spoke my piece and spoke quickly and a lot. From the moment I was born. And my mother, I guess, loved that about me. She loved the fact that my sister was much more shy. She was much more reserved. Um, really did what everybody wanted her to do. She was a good little girl. And I, even when my mother was alive, was testing, questioning. <laughs> and basically, yeah, not really listening. And so... Um, it's not surprising I said that man is a pig. I'm sure I didn't understand really the extent of what that meant. But Kelly said my dad put us to bed that night. Or my grandmother did. And they said goodnight and shut the door. And Kelly said for months, a very long time, she would rub my head and say, tell me that it's okay that mommy's going to come back. That mommy's going to walk through that door. Mommy's going to come back. Well, at some point I obviously thought, well, this is a crock of shit. She's not coming back, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, hi, uh -huh, you've been telling me this. Now, again, at some point, obviously, my memory stopped, right? So what happens now that I know st my study through brain science and through how um, childhood trauma works, there are two important times, very important, before the age of three, the, um, a couple of things that go on, and I and I will go into that later, I promise. Um, but one of the things is that if you lose your mom, even if after three, by the way, if you lose that that your mother, you are automatically going to look for somebody else to attach yourself to. You look for a replacement attachment figure because the death of a mother is so profoundly devastating for a child. And not just, let's say, you don't lose your mother in death, it's um, to a disease, like even she's in the hospital for long, long periods of time, mental health-wise, to um, you know, say that she goes and lives in a mental health care facility or she's a drug addict. All of the, the, that is very, very, it, it, it it, will, it can even change the child's brain. Um, and again, I will go into that someday soon about how the 
brain science works and how the mind works and what it does to protect you. Um, so my brother obviously was looking for a replacement attachment, as was my sister. Well, my brother would have, he found one real in my grandmother. And um, because basically my grandmother moved in immediately, my dad's mother. And George was with her all the time, 24-7. He, ne he never left her side. Um, Kelly and I would have naturally looked to our dad, but the minute she died, he checked out. So we lost two parents that day. We lost our mother to death and our father to alcoholism and abusiveness and his own demon thoughts and his own um, self-hate now, his own regrets and his shame. And now I know that a lot of those, the shame that he had was not just, was, was, was from the way he was to the woman he loved more than anything supposedly. All, you know, the way he treated her before he died, but also, you know, obviously he was heartbroken and the grief was too great. And he stayed, so, you know, there's five stages of grief. There's bargaining, anger, sadness, denial, and acceptance. I doubt he bargained for very long. I know that he couldn't deny it because it's in front of him. He has three little children and his wife is gone. So I don't really believe he went to denial. And I know he never, ever, ever accepted it. I do know the two stages that he stayed in for his entire life until he died was sadness and anger. The sadness only came out when he was drunk and the anger came out most of the time and especially also when he was drunk. The sadness first, then the anger. So he never went through those stages. And we couldn't attach to a man that was never there and drunk when he was or sleeping or mumbled a few words. So we're searching. We're searching for that attachment. My sister attached to my grandmother and also to... Um, the maternal grandfather. I, on the other hand, really didn't find an attachment figure that felt safe. Grandma Hogan was my safety, by far the most safety, but I still had to leave her every weekend. She was still leaving me, right? So that doesn't feel safe. And then I'm being left every weekend with my maternal grandparents who did not like me. And I can tell you that with 100% truth, they did not like me. And they actually disliked me. I'm sure it's because of my testing. Um, I know like I would touch things and then they would tell me not to and I would say things like, my mommy would let me do it, right? And my sister was just complacent. She didn't, she didn't rock the boat. She didn't do anything. She was a good girl. And I just didn't, I couldn't stay within that, um, polarity of being quiet, of saying nothing, just going in with the woodwork. So they treated me horribly. Um, and my sister had a bed. This is the truth. So we'd go there on the weekends and my sister had a nice single bed and they put me in a basement 
um, and on a couch, and it was an itchy, itchy love seat actually, with an itchy, horrible afghan. And my sister even remembers I was put on a, it was a basement floor with dirt. So I slept basically in the basement on dirt from the age of three every weekend alone. And very fearful. I remember do just twice I remember the fear I felt. I don't know why. And why I remember it, I'm shocked actually, but I do. And um, she, the grandmother, did whatever she could do to make me feel bad. And it was horrible. And so my sister remembers, and you know, I remember this is one memory I remember very much, like it was yesterday. She, Grandma Banzer had come home and brought my sister and I new seven dwarf cups. She gave Kelly Happy and Doc, and she gave me Grumpy and Dopey. And at the time, and you, it, we can laugh now, but it was really more, what am I learning during this time? So what am I getting? First of all, I have no attachment to anybody, no secure attachments. I'm learning that I can't trust other people. And I'm doing it this again. This is about me being sad for that little girl. And this is about what happens. I'm trying to teach you how we get to these insecure attachment styles, how we get to these places where we accept shit we should not accept. So I'm attached to nobody. I don't trust anybody. People are coming and going, which means people are always leaving me. So I believe I'm also being given um, messages that I'm worthless, that I'm stupid, that I'm grumpy, that I'm dopey, I'm unlovable, and that I'm unloved. So I am looking at everything that's happening around me that says, you are unlovable, people leave you, people abandon you, Heather. They drop you off at houses, your mom dies, your dad disappears, and you're dropped off at a house where you go in there and you're treated like a piece of garbage while you watch your sister emulated and loved. So I have no attachments. I'm insecure. I am literally starting, I'm, I'm getting proof that I, who I am is unlovable. I'm unlovable. I'm not loved. Who I am is not good enough. I'm not good enough to have a bed. I'm not good enough to have a mom. I'm not good enough to have a dad. I'm not even good enough to be treated like my sister. I'm, I'm so bad that I have to sleep in the basement on a dirt floor on a couch that's itchy and, and I can't even get loved. And I'm not even good enough that I can go with Grandma Hogan on the weekends with my brother. Instead, I doesn't matter. I have to be sent there to be abused and to be treated like a piece of shit. And that's when it all began. And those messages were beat into me over and over and over until I was five years old. And they didn't stop from five on, but I'm going to stop you here. So what is this going back to what I said before? Time is the wisest counselor of all. And lost time is never found again. If I look at my first five years, that's the wisest counselor of all. And I'm never going to get those five years back. Obviously, we don't. But if I kept never healed, 
I would keep losing time. Until next time, sending you much love, peace, joy, and happiness.